0: Good afternoon, everybody. It is Tuesday, April 14, 2020. We're glad that you've joined us here today for another edition of the Telephone Broadcasting Service from the City of cote St. Luke. Um, Today, we have two items for you. Uh, We're very excited about the first item. Um, The Montreal writer, Joel Yanofsky, agreed to read uh, from some of his book, uh, called Mordecai and Me. Uh, so he's going to be reading a couple of uh, parts from his book. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Here was a room full of people, most of whom couldn't care less about the nuances of literary life, most of whom hadn't read or anyway couldn't remember a word from Dody Kravitz or St. Herbert's Horseman or Solomon Gursky was here. And even so, they recognized something about Richard that was unmistakably true. He didn't just make trouble, he liked making trouble. Uh, We then have, uh, to finish the show, another episode from The Jack Benny Show. Uh, We hope you enjoyed the last one. So we're bringing you a new edition, uh, a new old edition, I suppose I should say, uh, from The Jack Benny Radio Show from those years ago. So here's the show. Hello, my name is Joel Yanofsky and I'm a writer here in Montreal and I've been kindly asked by uh, the Côte d'Alene Library and Janine West uh, to read you some stuff from a book I wrote uh, quite a few years ago now, it actually came out in 2003, that was a couple of years after the death of Mordecai Richler, which is a a pertinent fact since the book is about Richler. Uh, I started out wanting to write a biography, I think, after he died and what ended up instead was uh, some kind of obsession. That's the problem with books and writers. They don't always know what they're doing, and sometimes sometimes something good comes out of it, and I hope that that was the case in this. The book is called Mordecai and Me, An Appreciation of a Kind, and it is a reflection in large part of the mixed feelings I had about Richler. I knew him a little bit, our paths crossed, but we were never friendly, and every time I interviewed him, which was several times, uh, I was happy to get out of there you know, in 45 minutes with my dignity intact. I think he was happy to end the interview too. Uh, I don't know what it was. I think he probably suspected I wanted more from him than he was prepared to give, being a Montreal writer and a Jewish writer. Uh, So our relationship was, like I said, uh, uh, not that friendly. Uh, But once I started writing about him, I discovered that it was more complicated than even I knew it was. So I'll read you a little bit from the beginning that sort of explains what I'm doing, and then I'll read a little bit more uh, later on. It's just a couple, of two or three passages, <clears throat> so here we go. More than a year ago, when the idea for this book was no more than a three-page proposal and an alliterative illiter- title, I spoke to one publisher who expressed some interest in a Richler book, but who also worried about the timing of such a project. Was it too soon after his death, just a few months then, to be writing about him? Was it in bad taste? Absolutely, I said with inappropriate enthusiasm. Caught off guard by the question, I forgot for a second that I was making a pitch. That tact, not candor, was required. Still, I had given this question some thought. No doubt about it. I went on. There went on. There is a vulturous quality to this proposal. How could there not be? What is literature anyway, but picking at the bones of the dead? This turned out to be a rhetorical question. Instead of re- <coughs> <coughs> instead of reply. I heard a slight but audible gasp at the other end of the line. Publishers, i had always assumed, were made of sterner stuff. Apparently not. I had shocked this one, so for the sake of my pitch, I backtracked or attempted to. I talked about the importance of reassessing, reassessing Richler's place, preeminent, I assisted, in Canadian literature. But it was too late to be convincing, perhaps because I'd said what I meant the first time. Vulture was not the was the, Mojist, the right creature, too. There was no way around it. What I intended to do was exploit Mordecai Richler's life, or more to the point, his death for my own purposes. Literary purposes, true, <coughs> but so what? In A Sense of the Ridiculous, Richler's essay about his early days in Paris, he recalls with a sense of shame the moment he considered himself a writer. It was the moment he became cunning, somebody with a use for everything, even intimacies. And here I was with a use for a dead man. Richler was barely cold, the tributes were still pouring in, with other more elaborate ones still being planned, and here I was with my worried over proposal letter, my jaunty title, Mordecai and me, ampersand and all, trying to rush to the head of the line that would no doubt be forming around Richler and his reputation. What kind of person does that? What kind of person stalks the dead for the sake of a publisher's go-ahead, for a project, for a piddling advance? Frankly, I didn't know. I also didn't know where I got the chutzpah. Insofar as I have qualifications to write about Mordecai Richler, here they are. I was born on the same streets he wrote about, and though I didn't grow up there, my parents and grandparents did. Like Richler, I'm a Montrealer, which I'm more than I'm more that than Canadian. I'm also Jewish, not though not at all observant. I freelance, write novels when I can find the time and courage to work on one, and as a literary journalist and reviewer I have followed Richler's career and written about his work for more than two decades. These are qualifications, I suppose, but for what? An infatuation? An obsession? Mordecai and Me is the story of that obsession and how it has taken over my life, keeping me up nights, making me doubt myself and what I've gotten myself into. Still, there's no no doubting this. Mordecai Richler was the most infuriating, the most engaging and complicated character that Mordecai Richler never wrote about. This book will prove Richler wrong on that important point. Writers' lives are not boring. But then he knew that, the endearing SOB. He was keeping the A material for himself. In his novel, St. Urban's Horseman, the beleaguered hero, Jake Hirsch, pines for the company of an admired writer. You know what's important to me? Really, really important, Hirsch says, Dr. Samuel Johnson. I keep wondering, if I lived in in his time, would he have liked me? Would Dr. Johnson have invited me to sit at his table? I'm lucky, I guess. I know the answer to whether Mordecai Richler would have asked me to sit at his table. I know, because he never did. So that's how it starts. The book itself is not just about Richler, it's about other writers. And during the course of writing it, uh, something happened that surprised me, and that found its way into the book, found its way into my dreams, too. I began dreaming about a writer named Jan Martel, who I also knew a little bit, We sort of hung out a bit uh, at various times, Uh, and his career was taking off. He was quite a bit younger than me, and uh, he'd written the book The Life of Pi, of course. And uh, I'd been asked to interview him at a, at a Blue Metropolis panel discussion. And the fact is, I hadn't finished the book when I interviewed him. Uh, I hid that fact, and I also hid the fact that I didn't really care for the book very much, uh, maybe because I didn't finish it. But in any case martel's rise in his career sort of paralleled my struggle with this particular book <clears throat> and it all sort of culminated in this moment that i'm going to read you uh in this scene that i'm going to read you so here it go here we go with that writers seldom wish each other well Saul bellow said which is fair enough but then what what happens when not wishing other writers well isn't enough when it backfires as it tends to well for starters you should probably shut up about it Envy is the central fact of a writing life, Gore Vidal said, and the fact least talked about. There was more about Mordecai Richler and Jan Mattel I was keeping from Dr. Krauss. Dr. Krauss, I should say, is a psychiatrist, a psychologist or psychiatrist I'd sort of been, uh, employed, sort of, to analyze my obsession with Richler. And while I knew this would jeopardize our little experiment, I didn't care. I figured I'd always embarrass my, already embarrass myself enough in front of a former student. A few days after the Booker Prize nominees were announced, a list that included two other Canadians, Carol Shields and Rohinton Mistry, along with Martel, I received a call from an arts reporter for a local CBC television program. She was preparing a profile of Martell as a run-up to the prize ceremony, and she wanted someone to talk about the life of Pi, explain its success. Would I do that? I was tempted. I don't have rules I live by, but if I did, one would be to never say no to being on TV. Being on TV is like being alive, only more so, John Updike said, about his experience with the medium. That has been my experience as well. Still, in this case, I reluctantly declined. I confessed that while I had read most of Life of Pi, I couldn't bring myself to finish it. I found all that description of life on the lifeboat and the hero's survival strategies interminable. Asked once how much research he did for fact-based novels like Ragtime and Billy Bathgate, the novelist E.L. Doctor replied, Just enough. The opposite seemed true in Life of Pi. Martel had done his homework and then some. He learned everything there was to know about being shipwrecked with a Bengal tiger tiger, insofar as that was possible. As for me, I just didn't care. How often was something like that going to come up? As for the tiger, well, I said, don't get me started. A few weeks later, on the day the Booker Prize was handed out, TV came calling again. This time, a tr- producer for the local CBC Supper Hour news show asked if I could come in and talk to the anchor, Dennis Trudeau, about the Booker Prize ceremony. The show was going to be covering the Canadian, Canadian angle, in particular the local angle. After all, Martel was a Montrealer, one of ours. The plan was this. Bring in Martel's parents, some relatives and family friends, and tape them as they watch the live BBC feed announcing the winner which was scheduled for 5.30 local time, an hour before the CBC coverage began. If Jan Martel won, the local station would have an exclusive. Family stunned, tearful, celebrating, jumping up and down like game show contestants. Real reality TV. Meanwhile, Dennis Trudeau would immediately interview Martel's father and ask him how he felt. That sort of thing, the sort of thing television was invented for. But what if he doesn't win? I was told that would still make good television, though maybe not quite as good. Disappointment and failure play better in literature than on TV. So what about me? What do you need me for? I asked. Context, the producer said. The plan was for me to go on the air live with Dennis Trudeau after the winner was announced and the family interviewed and talk about the significance of literary prizes, this prize in particular, and if a Canadian did win, what significance it would have for Canadian literature. Once again, I knew I should say no, but this time I didn't. The producer told me to be at the studio for five, They wanted me to come in early and watch the BBC televised ceremony with Martel's family. So that's what I did. In fact, I arrived at the CBC at the same time as the Martel family. Jan's father, Emil Emil Martel, a diplomat and a respected poet, couldn't hide his excitement. His cell phone rang while we were talking. It was his son calling from London, he told me. Jan was staying calm, his father said. His father, on the other hand, wasn't. And why would he be calm? He had every reason to be proud, to be overwhelmed by this extraordinary event. I couldn't help imagining my parents in a similar situation, how they would feel, how they would be endearingly insufferable, overdosing on nachus. Then I dismissed the thought. There was already enough to be jealous about without me thinking about his parents how his parents were alive and mine weren't. As Martel's family and I were led to the studio, the only thing I could think of was that he wasn't going to win. I would have put money on it, given odds. I was convinced and felt like, like garbage for being so pleased with my prediction. I trailed after the Martell family into the studio. They were being seated for their on-camera segment when a stagehand saw me and called for another chair. Oh, no, not for me. I'm just observing, I said. I'm not part of the family, but part of the family of literature, Emil, Emil Martell jumped in, which only made me feel worse. Then the producer whispered in my ear, so the Martels wouldn't hear, that they had received a tip from the BBC earlier in the afternoon. They had been assured that a Canadian would win, Martel's odds were suddenly twice as good, decreasing from six to one, to three to one. The odds on my own predicament, on the other hand, were suddenly half as good. What if Jan Martel did win? Well, for starters, I would be asked what I thought of the book. If I expressed my honest and admittedly snippy opinion, it would sound like sour grapes, like a monumental case of sour grapes, which was, to be honest, more or less what it was. Then if again, then again, if I went on the air and said the book deserved to win, what kind of wimp would I be? What kind of bandwagon jumper? I could either be embittered and envious or suck up. Those were my choices. A writer's life encapsulated. I could also keep on rooting for my own petty personal reasons for Cheryl, Carol Shields. Of course, Martel won. Of course, his parents were thrilled. They even jumped up and down. They were jubilant and moved, and Emel Martel spoke eloqu- eloquently about what the victory meant to his son and to him. It was great television. Even I could see that. Suddenly, I wished I had a copy of Life of Pi with me so I could finish it on the spot in the, hour and so, or in the hour or so I had until I went on the air and proclaim my change of heart. In any case, I had decided what I was going to do. I was going to shut up. Discretion was a better part of valor and of simple, ordinary decency. Who was I to drizzle on this parade? That was my plan anyway, and I remained my plan until an hour later when another producer fetched me from the green room and told me as I went up to the studio for my live interview that they were, they were really glad to have me on, that I would give some balance to the Martell segment. Balance? What did she mean by balance? Well, she said, everyone's celebrating and everything, and then we have you, and you didn't even like the book. How do you know that, I asked. But I knew. I remembered my conversation with a CBC arts reporter a few weeks earlier. So then, live on the air, immediately after the audience at home had watched the Martell family celebrate their son's triumph, after what was arguably the biggest splash made by a writer in Canadian literary history, Dennis Trudeau turned to me and with a news anchor's talent for insinuation said, This wasn't your choice, was it? You didn't even like this book. It was a leading question, but no more than I deserved. I talked about the tiger and tried to make sense, but all I could think of was the Martell family and how, after they returned home from a cele- celebratory dinner, they were probably going to sit down to watch a tape of the program. And how even if I got really lucky and they'd programmed their VCR incorrectly or being cultured people had no VCR, there would be a whole slew of messages on their answering machine. What were the chances they didn't have an answering machine? Cra- congratulating them and then adding an, oh, by the way, who was that little prick bad Yan? What's his problem? So much for the family of literature. So, yeah, uh, like I said, this is a book that, embarrasses me as much as anybody else, so uh, I'll just read one last part, and it's, uh, it's, about, it's a more general piece about Montreal community's relationship with Mordecai Richler, and an experience I had with uh, that community. Late in the summer of 1994, I was asked to speak at a suburban synagogue by the woman in charge of the Book Review series. I'd done this kind of public speaking gig before, and I knew that while I was permitted to choose any book I wanted, there would be constraints. It was incumbent upon me to pick something appropriate. In other words, in other words, something Jewish. The more Jewish, the better. This wasn't going to be a problem. I could have hardly come up with a more appropriate book than Mordecai Richler's This Year in Jer- This Year in Jerusalem, account of two visits he'd made to Israel, one in 1962, the other 30 years later. I was going to be reviewing the book for the Gazette in the fall, and I just received my copy of the as yet unpublished manuscript. So on top of everything else, this would be a scoop. This here in Jerusalem wasn't just a brand new book by Richler. It was a book about Richler in the Holy Land. It was ipso facto, as Jewish as a matzah ball. I told the woman on the other end of the line all this and awaited her enthusiastic reply. None was forthcoming. There was no reply at all for a while. Then she finally asked, have you read it yet? I told her I hadn't, that no one had, that it wasn't out yet. All right, she said with a sigh. Read it, and let me know how bad it is. It took me a moment to realize that what she meant by how bad was how offensive. So Richler's in Jerusalem, so big deal, she was thinking. That'll make him stop with the vulgar remarks, maybe? All of a sudden you think butter melts in this guy's mouth? Not this piece of work. I asked the woman if she'd read much of Richler's not work. Enough, she said, by which she probably meant hardly any but she likely assumed that you don't have to be a chicken to recognize a rotten egg. In the name of literature, I suppose, I should have challenged her preconceived notions and the ease with which they arrived at them. she arrived at them, but instead I said, I'll let you know how bad it is, I mean. I didn't speak to her again until I showed up at her synagogue a couple of months later. I reassured her that the book was fine, and vetted by me it was. For my audience of mostly elderly men and women, I left out some of the more colorful things Richler had to say about the Holy Land. Like the remark he makes to a particularly zealous cabby who tries to lecture Richler on Inge- Israeli ingenuity, have you ever? If you guys ever thought of bottling Israeli piss and marketing abroad as perfume, or Richler's comment about how Jerusalem, with its honorary plaques from rich North American Jews everywhere, is a brilliantly organized panhandler's heaven, the ultimate Schnorrville. Instead, I took the high and the safe road. I gave them a Richler to be proud of. At least I tried. There was, for example, the eager young man who enjoyed joined Habanim, a Zionist youth organization, in the 1940s. The young man who had even considered dropping out of high school to fight in Israel's war of independence. There was Richler, the defender of the faith, boasting like a school kid about Israeli accomplishments, about blooming deserts, and Menachem Begin, our Jimmy Cagney. But the audience was restless. It turns out they wanted the bad stuff. They had comfort, and if I wasn't going to provide it, they would. After my lecture, the question-and-answer period consisted mainly of second-hand gossips, gossip about friends who knew friends, who knew Richler, and who knew, knew what a no-goodnik was, he was, or a lush, or an anti-Semite. He doesn't talk to his mother, you know, one woman said, or his brother, someone else added. He's a dentist. He lives in New Brunswick, the brother. And he's changed his name. Newfoundland, someone corrected. The brother lives in Newfoundland. Meanwhile, I stood behind my lectern, trying to act literary and above it all. I also tried to interject a remark here and there about the art of writing, about Richler's career, but I was all but superfluous. I was also getting annoyed. How beside the point all this nattering was, all this gossip, how inappropriate and unbefitting a man of literature, by which I meant not just Mordecai Richler, but me." now I wonder if I was wrong about how much this audience misunderstood Richler. Here was a room full of people, most of whom couldn't care less about the nuances of literary life, most of whom hadn't read or anyway couldn't remember a word from Dodi Kravitz or St. Urban's Horseman or Solomon Gursky was here. And even so they recognized something about Richler that was unmistakably true. He didn't just make trouble, he liked making trouble. He enjoyed pissing people off, and here they were, the proof, the pissed-off people. Everyone was getting what they expected. Everyone was happy. And that's my little excerpt from uh, Mordecai and Me, uh, an appreciation of a kind. I hope you get to read it sometime. I hope everybody stays safe and well. And thanks again for uh, inviting me into your ears, I guess. Uh, All the best.
1: The Jack Benny program transcribed, presented by Lucky Strike. Be happy, go lucky, be happy, go Lucky Strike. Be
2: happy, go lucky, go Lucky Strike strike today. The teacher said what blend is best, the college class replied. Those Lucky Strikes are happy smoke so mild and rich inside.
3: Whirl and twirl upon my skates and do a fancy spin. And cut these words right in the ice for mildness, lucky
1: win. Be happy, go lucky, be happy, go lucky, be
2: happy, go lucky, go be happy. Enjoy your cigarette. Enjoy truly fine tobacco that combines both perfect mildness and rich taste in one great cigarette, Lucky Strike. For only fine tobacco gives you both perfect mildness and rich taste. And L S M F T Lucky Strike means fine tobacco. So friends, be happy, go lucky, try a carton of Lucky Strike. Be
1: happy, go lucky. Be
2: happy, go Lucky Strike. Be happy, go lucky. Go Lucky Strike. lucky. Lucky Strike program starring Jack Benny with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, Dennis Day, and yours truly, Don
1: (laughs) Wilson.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, as you all know, a little over a month ago, Jack Benny made his first and only appearance in television. Last week, the radio and TV editors of the United States conducted a poll. And who do you think was selected as the most outstanding personality in television? Don. And which comedian was picked as having television's funniest program? Don. And who do you think was chosen as television's most popular? Don, Don, we, we can't do this introduction. Why not? We wrote it too soon. They picked Milton Berle. Oh. <laughs> So you'll you'll have to think of something else. Okay, Jack.
3: Uh, Wait a minute, Don. Jack Benny, do you mean to say that when you heard there was going to be a poll, you had the nerve to assume they were going to pick you? Well, You never wait for final results, do you?
2: What?
3: Every time you made a picture, you were so sure you were going to win the Academy Award.
2: Look, Mary. (laughs) What are you laughing at?
3: You're the only actor in Hollywood who's got 12 bottles of gold polish and no Oscars. (laughs)
2: So for your information, Mary, that polish isn't going to waste. Well, what do you mean? Come here a minute. You know that bowl in my living room that's full of goldfish? Uh-huh. Sardines. <laughs>
3: Well, you trained them to jump through onion rings. <laughs> <laughs>
2: It'd be great for television, was not it? Now, Don, due to this unfortunate turn of events, you'll have to give me another introduction. But Jack, I still think that even though you did only one program in TV, you should have been selected as television's greatest star. Well, well
3: Don... I agree with Don, Jack. Not only did you look youthful and handsome, but you're a master showman. Oh man. Why, Jack? I
2: thought your timing was absolute. Oh, kids, I know Christmas is coming, but let's not get panicky. <laughs> So that it, using flattery to get Christmas presents. Phil, I'm surprised you didn't go along with them. Why should I butter you up for a lousy pair of shoelaces?
1: <laughs> Wait a minute, Phil. I'll admit that three years
2: ago I gave Don Wilson a pair of shoelaces for Christmas. But I only did that for a gag. Well, I'm ready for another gag. They both this morning. <laughs> really? I-, I knew I should have gotten the ones with the metal tip. <laughs> Hey, fellas, I still think that you got a lot of nerves. Oh, I'll get it. Hello? Yeah, yeah, she's here. Hold the wire. Mary, it's for you.
3: Oh, thanks. Hello? Oh, hello, babe. Why did you get into town? Your sister, babe? Yeah. What? Oh, that's wonderful, babe. Where are you staying while you're here? Oh, be more specific. Which YMCA? <laughs> what? And uh, how were things at home when you left? Aunt Clara had a boy? Yeah, Aunt Clara had a boy this time.
2: Oh, just what she wanted. That makes it even, doesn't it?
3: Yeah, 12 of each. <laughs> uh, babe, what are you doing in California? Do uh, you have to go to San Francisco? So soon? But it seems like they just painted that bridge.
1: <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah. Well, tell me, babe, if you're going to San Francisco, what are you doing here in Los Angeles? Lawsuit? You're going to sue Phil Harris? But why? Oh, babe, I'm sure he doesn't mean you when he sings about the thing.
1: <laughs> what? Your pictures on the music? <laughs>
3: case. So long, babe. See you later.
2: Hey, Phil, babe's going to sue you. You better explain what the thing is. What kind of a song is it, anyway? Well, Jackson, I can't describe it to you. You'll have to hear it. Well, can your boys play it? That's all they can play. (laughs) Well, okay. Come on. Let's have
1: it. (laughs)
2: I was walking down the beach one bright and sunny day. I saw a great big wooden box floating in the bay. I pulled it in and opened it up, but much to my surprise, Ooh, I discovered a... right before my eyes. Ooh, I discovered a... right before my eyes. I picked it up and ran to town as happy as the king. I took it to a guy I knew who'd buy most anything. But this is what he hollered at me as I walked in his shop. Oh, get out of here with that! Before I call a cop, oh, get out of here with that. Before I call a cop, I turned around and got right out of running for my life. And then I took it home with me to give it to my wife. But this is what she hollered at me as I walked in the door. Oh, get out of here with that. And don't come back
1: no more. Oh, get out of here with that. And don't come back no more.
2: I wandered all around the town until I chanced to meet a hobo who was looking for a handout on the street. He said he'd take most any old thing. He was a desperate man. But when I showed him, a, he turned around and ran. Oh, when
1: I showed him, a, he turned around and ran.
2: I wandered on for many years, a victim of my fate, until one day I came upon St. Peter at the gate. But when I tried to take it inside, he told me where to go. Oh, get out of here with that and take it down below. Oh, get out of here with us, and take it down below. The moral of this story is, if you're out on the beach, and you should see a great big box, and it's within your reach, don't ever stop and open it up. That's my advice to you, cause you'll never get rid of them,
1: no matter what you do. No, you'll never get rid of them, no matter what you do.
2: That was very good, but I still can't understand it. Well, Jack, the sportsman quartet are here, and they have a version of that same song that may explain it to you. The quartet? Well, go ahead, boys. Let's hear it. Whenever Mr. Harris used to open up his mouth, you knew that he was going to sing that song about the South. Now, just when he's in choir, then we can't remember when he learns a song
1: about And here we go again, oh, he learns a song
2: about Here we go again. Bill Harris, we all kind of like the way you sing a song. But don't you think it's possible to sing one song too long? If you would change a lyric or two, your hooper, you might like So why not sing about the cigarettes we like? So why not sing about the cigarettes we like? For he's found poking satisfaction Lucky is the one You'll never take a puff that's rough That's why they're so much fun They are so mild and safe too You'll say for goodness strike That's the light of us The cigarettes we like
3: That's the light of us The cigarettes we like After all is said and done It's L.S.M.S.T. So round and firm and fully packed And on the draw so free
1: Be happy and go lucky with us And join us at mic Then we can sing about the cigarettes we like. Oh, we can sing about the cigarettes
2: we like. Well, Don, Don, I get a much better picture of it now, but I would have enjoyed it even more if Phil's orchestra wasn't off-key. What do you mean, <laughs> off-key? Now, let me tell you something, Jackson, that you may not know. Some of my musicians are symphony men. They used to be with Giannini. (laughs) That's Toscanini. Giannini. A natural mistake for a chap whose wife owns the Bank of America. (laughs)
1: Well, well,
2: I'm not interested. Come in. Mr. Benny. Yes? I'm from the Red Arrow Messenger Service. I was told to give you this envelope. This? Oh, yes, I I know what it is. Thanks. You're welcome. Oh, just a minute, boy. Here. Here's a tip for you. Oh, boy, A nickel. Now I can move to Beverly Hills. (laughs) Yeah, I'm glad they finally sent this envelope over. Uh, What is it, Jack? Well, I'm going to be interviewed by a radio commentator, and she sent me the question, so I'll have to think about the answers. Mary, here, you go over this with me and read the questions just as they're written, will you please?
3: Okay. Here's the first question. Tell me, Mr. Benny, where were you born?
2: Uh, Waukegan, Illinois, February 14th,
1: 1911. (laughs) Well,
2: go ahead, Mary, ask me the next question. Well.
3: (laughs) All right. (laughs) Mr. Benny, we've seen many pictures of you in a sailor suit. What year did you enter the Navy?
2: 1917. Go ahead, Mary, next question.
3: minute, Jack. You were born in 1911 and went into the Navy in 1917?
2: Yes. Next question. Now, all this, Jackson. If you were born in 1911 and went in the Navy in 1917, you would have been only six years old. Next question, Mary. Jack, how could you possibly get into the Navy when you were only six years old? I had a tough draft board and shut up. <laughs> now, go ahead, Mary. Ask me the next question.
3: Okay. Now, Mr. Benny, this is your 19th year in radio, isn't it? Yes. Uh, Who was your first sponsor? Uh,
2: Canada Dry Ginger Ale. Next question, Mary.
3: Well, after they fired you, what did you... Hold (laughs) it.
2: Let me see that. That's after they hired me. After they fired me.
3: A natural mistake for a gal who broke down the garage door and pulled the exhaust pipe out of your mouth. (laughs)
1: Mary,
2: this is a real legitimate interview, so let's be serious. Now, ask me the next question.
3: All right. Mr. Benny, tell me something about Rochester, your butler. Rochester? Yes. How long has he been with you?
2: Well, Rochester's been with me 14 years. As a matter of fact, it'll be exactly 14 years in March.
3: Well, how did you happen to find Rochester? I'm
2: glad you asked me that. It's a very interesting story. 14 years... Jack,
3: I know how you found Rochester. Let's get on to the next question. But wait a minute, Mary. I'm going to
2: have to do it when they interview me on the program, so I might as well get it all clear in my mind now. Fourteen years ago, I was in New York. It was about the middle of March, 1937. The weather was so nice, I decided to take a little drive. I was driving along 7th Avenue around 134th Street. In my Mary Maxwell car, I go roaming near and far. Oh, da-dum, da-dum, da-dum. Ah, there's nothing like an auto ride on a day like this. Gosh, how time flies. Here it is, 1937. I've sure had this car a long time. I bought it secondhand, too. Got it from the Smiling Pilgrim.
1: <laughs>
2: what am I laughing it up for? I'm all alone. In my Mary Maxwell car... Ah, oh, what a beautiful day. The month of March can be so nice in New York. Trees beginning to bud, birds are singing. See, it's great to be alive. I'm glad Mary pulled that exhaust pipe out of my mouth. <laughs> she was right, I did get another job. In my Mary Maxwell car, I go roaming near and... <laughs> How do you like that? Hey, you, this is all your fault. My fault? You think just because you drive a taxi, you can smash into other people's cars. But, mister... Don't butt Mister me. I'm going to sue you and your taxi company for damages. Because it was your fault. But, mister, I was
1: parked here when you hit me. This is a gas station.
2: <laughs> well, I can't understand how I could have run into you.
1: Neither can I. I was up on the green grass.
2: Mind that. Let me see your driver's license. Okay, here it is. Hmm. March 18, 1937. Issued to Rochester Van Jones. Five feet ten inches, 155 pounds, thirty-one years old. Orchid Chornia. What's that? Don't die. My card, and I'm gonna take you into court and get every cent you got in the world. You can reach in my pocket and do that. <laughs> well, you better think it over, and I'm willing to be reasonable. If you want to arbitrate and settle this out of court, I'll be home all afternoon. Hey, do you think that a new taxi driver you hired will work out, Emma? I don't know, Emma. <laughs> See why you had to hire a driver in the first place. We well, only got one cab and I can drive that. Listen, Amos, when you reach as our position in business world, you has gotta have, got have people working for you. Yeah, well, I can't see where we has reached no position like that. <laughs> Listen,
1: Amos.
2: <laughs> do you realize that last month we lost less money than any month since we've been in business? <laughs> yeah, but
1: there's
2: a reason for that. Last month I only had twenty-eight days in it. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. You know, Amos, if we can find a month short enough, we'll be able to break-even. Yeah, but Andy, I still think that we should wait till we start making money before we go around hiring people. No, no, Amos, people is the thing. If <laughs> we ain't got nobody working for us and we go bankrupt, there ain't going to be nobody sorry for us but us.
1: <laughs> and
2: us ain't enough people to absorb all that song. Well,
1: Andy, we ain't bankrupt yet, though.
2: I know, but we are getting into those long months. I still think that I should deal with that driving that cab myself. Uh, here comes Rochester, your new driver. Uh, hello there, Rochester. How was business this morning?
1: Bang up, gentlemen! Bang up! <laughs> uh, what do you mean? I had an accident with a man named Jack Benny.
2: Jack Benny? Oh, that must be the radio comedian. If yes, it is, this is really bad. <laughs> He's supposed to be the cheapest man in the world.
1: Cheapest man in the world?
2: Yes, sir. I hear he lives so close to his money that even his skin feels like an outsider.
1: <laughs>
2: and I also hear that he's got a zipper on his wallet that has yet to make its first zip.
1: Well, a man, he must be. <laughs> oh, he can't be so bad, gentlemen. In fact, he said he'd be home all afternoon if we wanted
2: to arbitrate. Wanted to arbitrate who? The man said, "Arbitrate." Arbitrate. Well, now, there have been any coincidence. <laughs> Arbitrate happens to be the one word in the English language with which I ain't familiar. Well, why don't you look it up the dictionary, Dan? Yeah, that's what I'll do. I got the dictionary right here. Yeah. Arbitrate. <laughs> R. <laughs> Is the second
1: letter? You ain't got
2: the first one yet. I know I ain't. I'll get the first letter. I'm working on the second. Now let me see here. Well, hello there, boys. How's everything going? Oh, not so good, Kingfish. Rochester here done had an accident in the taxi cab. Well, that's bad, boys. Bad. It's worse than that. The man he accident with is going to arbitrate him. Oh, that ain't good, boys. How you know? You have been arbitrated. <laughs> I
1: don't think you know the meaning of the word. Let me see that dictionary. Now I
2: think it begins with an A. Let's see. Arbitrarily. Arbitrarily. Here it is. Arbitrary. To act as an (laughs) arbiter. Well,
1: that's logical. To mediate.
2: That ain't told us nothing yet.
1: (laughs) To act as an umpire.
2: Well, the man wants to play baseball. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Listen. Kingfish, you was thinking of umpire. This here is umpire. <laughs> well, what is the difference? Well, there's a baseball umpire, the British umpire, and the umpire state building. <laughs> Three entirely different words. Ah, <laughs> oh, here it is. arbitrary To settle a dispute. That's it, gentlemen. I think Mister Belly wants to settle this dispute. Oh, I do that all the time. Yeah, I know what Yeah, that. well, Kingfish, you better come along with us. We got to go to see this man that Rochester accidented with. Yeah, well, you go along, and my place, Kingfish. I better take the taxi cab over to the shop and fix it. Yeah, okay. We better go. And remember, when we seize the man, let's all arbitrate in the same direction. <laughs> yeah, we have to watch that. Come on, let's get on over there. Come on. <laughs> Here it is, Kingfish. This is the right place, ain't it, Rochester? That's what it says here on the card. Yeah, good. Yes? Uh, Excuse us for protruding, but uh, I, as the general manager, general counsel, and everything else for the First Air Taxi Care Company of America, eliminated. Yeah. And I, as likewise. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Uh, you men are here about the accident. Uh, come right in. Uh, I presume that your drivers informed you of the circumstances and my position in this case. Oh, yes, sir. He done did that. Now, Mr. Benny, if you'll just make us out a check for $50, we'll forget the whole thing. <laughs> me? Pay you? Listen, you start those tactics with me. You won't even get the first base. There you are, gentlemen. I told you the man wanted to play baseball. <laughs>
1: baseball?
2: Look, don't talk in riddles or I'll turn this matter over to a Lawyer? Lawyer? Well, here's card, Mr. Benny. Wait a minute, here. Wait a minute, King Pinch. You was on our side. I am. Sure. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I got my hipers ahead the head of a car person <laughs> Now, look, you boys. You pay me for the damage to my car, or I'll take you to court. Well, now, just a minute there, Mr. Benny. You acting kind of hasty. You ain't even let us tell our side of the story. I don't care about your side of the story. I'll have my lawyer see you in the morning. Well, now, just and... a minute, Mr. Benny. Just a minute. Uh, hold it, please. Uh, Say, Andy, come here. we got to do a little conference no, no, Rochester, you stay where he is. This is just for the of the company. Yeah, Rochester, we'll put up a bulletin for the employees. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Keith, uh, you look like you done gimmicked gimmick, to a gimmick here,
1: Yeah,
2: uh, I just don't give myself an idea in the head, yeah. Sure. Now, look, uh, uh like we, uh, it, it seems to me we're going to have to pay Mr. Benny, and we ain't got no cash. Yeah, and I don't think we can give him no check, neither. He looks like a vegetarian. <laughs> If he don't see no green in front of him, he ain't going to bite us. Was... And look here, I done noticed that uh, Mr. Bennett done answered the door by itself. In other words, putting it into vehicular. That means that he ain't got no gentleman's gentleman. Yeah. Getting the guts of your conversation, Kingfish. He ain't got no valour, huh? Yeah, you getting a half-nelson on the thing now, yeah. <laughs> and uh, as far as Rochester's concerned, we don't want no driver who is reckless enough to get hit on a grease rack. <laughs> Now look, Man, do you follow me? Follow you, kidding If you turn around, we can dance.
1: <laughs>
2: now, you mean the thing to do is to palm Rochester off on Mr. Benny, huh? That's it. Now now watch, man. Watch. Yeah. Uh Miss Benny
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah? Uh, we has done your the things from every angle and we want to give you the benefit of all the bricks. And make a settlement in your favor. That's what I want to do. Oh, well, well, that's different. Yeah, now, Mr. Benny, we're going to take our cards out of our sleeve and lay them right on the table. No. Now, but if you'll just bring your valet in here to witness this, Valet? Like, uh, I don't have a valet. No valet? A man of your social position? Mm. A man who is the star of stage, screen, and radio? And who has done, nominated himself for an Academy
1: Award? <laughs> a man like you
2: has got no valet? Well, I. Uh... No valet? Well, I, I tell you, fellas, I've been thinking a long time of getting a ballot, but somehow the right man hasn't come along. Ha, ha, ha. He's here now.
1: <laughs> yes,
2: sir, he's here already. Gentlemen, gentlemen, for sit around me. Quiet, <laughs> Rochester, quiet. And shake hands with your new boss. Wait a minute, not so fast. Come on, Andy, we got to go. Now, wait a minute. Goodbye, Mr. Bell. Good luck,
1: Rochester. Yes, <laughs> I'm working for you now. Don't you
2: think we ought to discuss money? Well, yes, yes, Rochester. What do you think would be a fair salary?
1: I ain't going to get that, so let's start somewhere else. (laughs) Well,
2: good, good. Grab that vacuum cleaner. We can talk as we walk. Gentlemen, according to the National Safety Council, the holiday season is an especially critical period as far as traffic accidents are concerned. So be careful if you drive the car or if you take a walk. Watch traffic lights, obey traffic regulations. The life you save may be your own. Thank you. <laughs> Jack will be back in just a moment. But first, everybody, be happy, go lucky, and let's join in a real old fashioned square dance. Be happy, go lucky go lucky, happy, go lucky, go lucky, strike today. I call the dance while couple whirl and swing and dozy do and when I call out lucky strike, it always stops the show.
3: I could have come with Luke or Cy, but Clem's the one for me, called he fine tobacco count and L-S-M-S-T. Be happy, go so lucky, be happy, go so lucky, strike,
2: be happy, go lucky. Today. Yes, friends, be happy, go lucky, enjoy your cigarettes. Puff by puff, you'll find Lucky's always give you perfect mildness. In fact, scientific tests confirmed by three independent consulting laboratories prove Lucky Strike is milder than any other principal brand. And puff by puff, you always get rich taste, too. All the deep-down smoking enjoyment that comes from truly fine tobacco. Because LSMFT, Lucky Strike means fine tobacco. So, friends, be happy. Go lucky. Try a carton of lucky strikes. Be
1: happy. Go lucky. Be happy. Go lucky. And be happy. Go lucky. Go lucky. Good day.
2: Well, Mary, I think the way I've got the interview is all right. I think people will be interested in the way I found Rochester.
3: Well, I think so. But, Jack, how could you have possibly hit his car while I was up in the grass reek? Ha <laughs>
2: natural mistake for a girl who's going back to the May company tomorrow. Good night, folks. We're a Be tuned here, Dennis Day, in a day in the life of Dennis Day.
1: Stay tuned for the end of the me. And, five. Right, this is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.